of chapter 4 as we are slowly winding down our series on Jonah. And uh, I would say that my hope and intention was finishing up Jonah today. And, you know, I kind of mapped it out and have been preparing. And, you know, sometimes you get yourself in trouble as, as a pastor because you're, you're starting to work on a sermon series and you're writing a sermon. And then you listen to somebody else preach that passage and you realize, holy cow, I've missed it. <laughs> There's so much more. And, and I did that, actually. I listened to jo- Tim Keller's series on Jonah. And so I'll have to say, giving him full credit, that much of today and next Sunday's sermon are really borrowing heavily on what Keller said because... There's more to it, I think. I needed to, uh, to go a little bit further in Jonah than I was planning on. So we're going to look at Jonah chapter 4 and break it up into two sermons, really. And so we'll hopefully wrap up Jonah next Sunday. Um, and next Sunday is the beginning of Advent. Hard to believe, isn't it? Next Sunday, a week from today, is the first Sunday of Advent. So that's exciting as we come together to celebrate. Starting next Sunday, prepare our hearts for the birth of Christ. Well, Jonah 4 this morning, that's what we're going to look at. And actually, we're only going to look at uh, the first... Um, Four verses this morning of Jonah 4. And let me read the last verse of Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, and then the first four verses of Jonah 4, 1 through 4. Let me pray before we do. God, thank you for your word. It is true. It's infallible. It's authoritative, Lord. It is really the only rule of faith and practice for us. And I pray this morning, would you open our eyes and our ears to your word this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, and show us. Lord, show us our sin. Um, Please help us to stop kidding ourselves about sin and and, and see the seriousness of it and the destruction of it and the absolute hopelessness apart from knowing Jesus um, that we are and we have when we're in sin. And so what I pray this morning, open our ears and our eyes and our heart to your precious life-giving gospel and word this morning and and, uh, come visit us, Jesus. And uh, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, Jonah 3, verse 10 and then 4, 1 through 4. Here we go. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, so slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, have you any right, Jonah, to be angry? I just read from the NIV, the 1984 version of the NIV. I like how the NIV translates this, and so that's why I read that. So if you saw a little different distinction in what you had printed out in your bulletins, that's from the ESV, and this is from the NIV 84 version. Well, we've been studying the book of Jonah now for several weeks, right? And we're at the the last chapter this morning, and we're going to break this up into two weeks. And the last chapter of Jonah is a surprise chapter. Now, why do I say the last chapter of Jonah, Jonah 4, is a surprise chapter? Well, it has one of the most surprising endings of any book in all of Scripture. Uh, In fact, I think you could entitle the last chapter of the book of Jonah like this, The Incredible Collapse of Jonah. The Incredible Collapse of Jonah. Of Jonah, and the reason I think it's so incredible is this: you know, we we saw the first three chapters of Jonah over the last several weeks. Jonah was called to go and preach to, to the Ninevites. Right, he was sent to the capital of Assyria, and uh, he was sent to call the people of Assyria of Nineveh to turn from their wickedness. Right, 
turn from their pagan ways and turn to the living God, the God of Israel. And then we saw Jonah run from this call in his life, right? God had placed this call very clearly in Jonah's life, and we saw Jonah run. And then we saw this God of abounding grace and love pursue Jonah all the way. And then in chapter 3, we see, or chapter 2, we see God rescues Jonah. He sends this whale uh, to rescue Jonah. Jonah is rescued. Uh, God restores him essentially back to ministry. He gives him a second call to go back to Nineveh and repent. And we see him go and he preaches. And in chapter 3, you read chapter 3 and you see that the entire nation, this whole culture is changed. They turn to Jonah's God, to the living God, Yahweh. Now, it's interesting that Nineveh back then is now what we know as modern-day Iraq. Isn't that interesting? Modern-day Iraq, where we see now in Iraq, is what used to be Nineveh. And think about this, the magnitude of this. God had called Jonah. Jonah was Jewish, right? He was a Jew. He was an Israelite. God called Jonah to go to what is now modern-day Iraq, to this pagan society, and call it to repentance. Call it to repent. Because it was a violent society. It was a pagan society. Uh, they were an uh, oppressive society, uh, ruling and, and, and uh, harassing the nations around them, including Israel. And so Jonah goes to, to, to Nineveh, which is now modern-day Iraq, and he calls them to turn to the living God of Israel. And it's interesting, the only difference between then and now is back then, uh, Assyria, which is now modern-day Iraq, Assyria back then was, uh, was a huge power. They were the most influential nation around. Today, Iraq is not, right? It's kind of a second-rate power. But back then, Assyria was a modern uh, nation. They, they, they had no equal among them. Uh, they used their power uh, and their influence to harass other nations, to harass, harass Israel. And so God calls Jonah to preach, right, and go to the most powerful nation of the time. And so Jonah does. And he goes to this most powerful nation of the time. Here is this lowly Jew, Jonah, who shows up. He walks through the city, and that shows you the scope of the city. Chapter 3 says that Jonah walked through the city, and it took him three days to get from one side of the city to the other. That's a big, big city, right? So he goes and he preaches a very simple message, and as he does so, the people repent, and they say, Jonah, you're right. I mean, these godless folks are saying, Jonah, you're right. We are violent. We are out of control. We are oppressive, we are wrong, and we are turning from our gods to your God, Jonah. And bam, just like that, this huge revival happens in the nation of Nineveh. You know, I wish my sermons were that powerful, right? You know, you say a few words and bam, the whole nation repents, the whole culture's changed. So what would you expect would happen when you get to Jonah chapter 4? After what happens in chapter 3, you would expect when you get to Jonah 4, right? that Jonah would celebrate, right? You would think you would read chapter 4 and it would say that Jonah celebrated and said, yeah, God, way to go. The people repented. The whole culture has changed. I'm going to go back to my people and we're going to celebrate the goodness of God, right? And Jonah turns back to his land rejoicing. That's what we would expect Jonah 4 to read, right? But nobody expects chapter 4 to be like this. Instead, what do we have? Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. And Jonah was what? exceedingly displeased. I am angry enough to die. What? You know, what's going on? Wait a minute, Jonah, Mr. Whiny Pants. What's going on, right? And so why would a preacher like Jonah get exceedingly angry when we see this amazing response to his preaching? That he, in his preaching, God has used his his words to literally change an entire culture and turn a nation away from violence and oppression 
to the living God? And that's what we're going to try to answer this morning and next week as well. And I think the answer has to do with the love of God, the love of God. And that's really what Jonah chapter 4 is about as a whole. It's about the love of God. And in fact, that's what God says to Jonah, doesn't he? What does he say at the very beginning of Jonah 4? What does he say? Jonah was greatly displeased, and he prayed, God, you know, I knew you would say this. And so what does Jonah say about God? Jonah understands this about God, about God's love. What does he say? Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to run from you. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in what? What is the word he uses? Abounding in love, right? Abounding in compassion, abounding in mercy, abounding in love. He's saying, God, I don't understand how your love operates here. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. How could you love the Assyrians, the people who have oppressed us as a nation? And then God sets out in this chapter to teach Jonah how his love operates. So the whole of Jonah really is about God's love, but particularly chapter 4. It's about this incredible collapse of Jonah because Jonah misunderstood God's love, okay? Now, what about you and me? Maybe we haven't had a collapse in our life like Jonah had. You know, Jonah blew it pretty big time here, but all of us have had little collapses in our life, haven't we? Times where we have failed, And so what Jonah 4, what God's trying to show us here in Jonah is that these collapses in our life, all of them have the same roots of the same collapse that Jonah had in his life. And so that's what we need to see this morning about God's love and what God's love is like here in Jonah chapter 4. And so this morning, we're only going to have time to look at one thing about God's love this morning, and it's this. We're going to see, I hope, God's abounding and patient love. God's abounding and and patient love here in Jonah chapter 4. And here Jonah is struggling with what Keller called the promiscuity of God's love. That God's love was promiscuous. The promiscuity of God's love. That God would be so promiscuous in his love that he would just forgive and pardon the Assyrians, Nineveh, regardless of their past or their pedigree, regardless of what they had done to the nation of Israel. And Jonah's struggling with that. He's missing, he he doesn't understand this bold and patient love of God. You know, think about this. Jonah had experienced it, right? God had called him, and we saw this several weeks ago, that God had called Jonah to be a prophet originally first to his own people, the Israelites, and he was, and he had a very successful ministry to his own people, Israel. Now think about this. The nation of Israel, the Jews, right? They were just as rebellious as these Assyrians, the Ninevites, And in fact, in many ways, the Israelites, the Jews, should be even more damned because of this. Because they had tasted and experienced God's love again and again. God had made a covenant with them that he would be their God and they would be his people, right? And yet, time and time again, they had rebelled and turned away from God, right? And even even as a nation, as God's people, taken some other pagan practices and kind of worked it into their own religion, if you will. And so, in many ways, they were more so without excuse. And yet, Jonah had seen God's grace to his own people. And then Jonah himself had experienced God's love individually, right? He ran from the Lord, right? God rescued him. Instead of drowning him and just letting him, you know, sink to the bottom of the ocean, and that's the end of him, God sent a miraculous fish to rescue him, 
right? In a way, it was kind of the, in a way, the fish was like Jesus. God, God sent this fish to rescue Jonah. And God saved him. And then it says that the, the word of the Lord came back to Jonah a second time, that he wasn't disqualified from ministry, but was forgiven and, and resent once again to do God's work and to preach God's words. He was commissioned once again. And so here we have in Jonah chapter 4, all of a sudden, Jonah has tasted God's grace. We've seen that. And then he's falling back in chapter 4 into the same patterns of sin, right? That God was trying to to, uh, rescue him from, deliver him from. And Jonah admits it, right? We just saw that. We just read that in the beginning of Jonah 4. Jonah tells God, God, I'm mad at you. I'm mad at you that you have forgiven and you have shown compassion to the Assyrians. And he falls right back into this sinful pattern, right? And the only thing that's keeping Jonah from being obliviated at this point, right, is God's abounding and patient love. So here's the question for us this morning. Why is God's abounding patience and love, why is it not more effective in our life? Why is God's abounding and patient love, why was not as effective in Jonah's life? I mean, here he is, he's blowing it again. He's returning back to the old patterns once again. Why is God's abounding and patient love not as effective in our life? And then how can God's abounding and patient love be more powerful and effective in our life? That's what I hope we're going to see this morning. We're going to answer that question. So here's, there's a key teaching here in this chapter. Would you say that Jonah, Jonah was a noticeable and famous Christian? Yeah, right? I mean, he's got his own book in the Bible, right? Can you think of other noticeable or famous Christians that you maybe know, or maybe have been, been very influential in your life, who have also fallen back into old patterns of sin and self-deception. You know, fruitful Christians, even you, you can be a fruitful Christian, or you can know a noticeable or a famous Christian, and you can fall back into old patterns of sin and self-deception. And it's only the abounding and patient love of God that stands between us and destruction, us and God's wrath. And his love is so powerful and his love is so patient that he always, in his grace, brings us back. And that sounds a lot like Jonah's life, doesn't it? Jonah was a perfect perfect example. I can almost hear Jonah saying after the first three chapters, whew, I was so rebellious, I was so full of racism and so full of hatred toward the Assyrians, but God, you rescued me, you recommissioned me, and I went and, and I spoke and you did amazing things through my sermons and they repented and I repented and wow, that was awesome and I'm never going to go do that again. I'm never going to return from the Lord again. Boy, I'll never do that again. You ever caught yourself saying that? Raise your hand. Boy, I'll never do that again. <laughs> oh gosh, we say that all the time. Boy, I'll never do that again. And here he is, Jonah is back to his old ways again in chapter 4. So what does this teach us? You know, I think, I think many Christians share a similar misunderstanding with many folks who aren't Christians. You see, they have this similar misunderstanding, Jonah had it, about the nature of what a Christian is. Think of it like this. A lot of Christians believe that they have the life of God in them, that they are born again, and because of that, they really can't fall that far. And maybe that's true when you first come to the Lord and you're excited about your faith, right? You remember that, just the newness of your faith and the newness of experiencing the love of God, and you just feel like you're not going to be able to fall that far. And then a lot of non-Christians believe, well, they would say this. Well, the non-Christian would say, well, the Christian, those born-again folks, they believe that they're going to go to heaven because of what God has done. And so because of that, they ought to be better behaved than the average person. 
And so then a lot of what folks believe, whether they're Christian or non-Christians, is that, that the essence of a Christian is someone who is a lot better than anybody else. And that's what they base their Christianity upon. Well, in essence, that is true. Now, hang with me. Think about this. The moment that you become a Christian, the moment that you pass from death to life, when you pass into faith, when you're converted, what's different about you than somebody else who isn't a Christian, who hasn't trusted the Lord? What's different? There is something different about you, right? Well, at least at first, the Christian, the new Christian, they might not be any stronger than anybody else except in one particular area. They're strong enough to admit their weakness. They're strong enough to admit their weakness, right? They're strong enough to admit that they are too wicked to come to God without a Savior. Do you remember that when you first came to Christ? God uncovered your sin. You saw your depravity and thought, oh, there is nothing I can do to save myself, right? And by God's grace, he reveals your sin to you. And then by God's grace, he reveals the love of Christ through the cross to you. And you fall on your knees and worship and say, God, thank you that you have rescued me. And there is nothing that I could have done to save myself, right? And you realize that and you become instantly strengthened enough to say, it wasn't me. It was God, right? I wasn't strong enough to save myself. It had to be God. And so they are strong enough to admit that they are too wicked to come to God without a Savior. And that they must give their lives over to the Lord Jesus. And then they're even able to say, listen, I am not even capable of being holy in and of myself. That I can't even grow in holiness apart from Christ and his power. Now, here's the vital truth. If you're not able to say that, then I'm wondering, and I want to wonder along with you, are you even saved? If you're not able to say, if you lack the strength to admit that in your weakness, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. If you're not even able to admit that, then it makes you wonder, it should make you wonder Are you in Christ? You see, you lack the very thing that Christians have from God, being able to admit, by God's grace, their complete self-interest, their love for their own glory and not for God's glory. And if you're not capable of admitting that, then you should wonder, is God graciously intervened? Am I saved? Do I really know him? You see, we don't, in ourselves, in our sin, have enough strength to just look at ourselves and admit the worst about ourselves, right? You just can't do that. You don't hear non-Christians running around all the time admitting the worst of themselves, right? What do they try to do? What do we try to do? We try to hide, right? We try to present the best of ourselves. Or we try to shift the blame on others, right? We try to shift the blame on circumstances, right? Well, you know, the reason I'm cranky is just because I didn't get enough sleep last night. (laughs) Well, Well, the reason I'm cranky is, well, I just had a bad day at work or The reason I'm cranky is I had a flat tire. Well, I mean, yeah, those things happen. But no, the reason you're cranky is because you're a sinner. (laughs) Gosh, it sounds like I've been smoking for years. Sorry. (coughs) It's my chest and my cough. Sorry. Or I'm just a confrontational person. I'm just, that's just the way I am. No, the reason you're that way is because you're arrogant and you're sinful. Well, I'm just fill in the blank, right? No, a Christian is able to take full responsibility of their sin and say, no, You know, the reason I'm cranky, the reason I've been a jerk to you this morning is because I'm really selfish. I'm really curved in on myself, and I'm not loving you well. And in fact, I really love myself more than I love you right now. And a Christian's able to own that and take full responsibility of their sin. They're able to say, no, I can't run my own life. And I need a king. I need somebody to save me. I am too wicked to save myself. I need a savior. 
And this is God's grace in the life of a Christian versus a non-Christian. You know, it's even God's grace that enables a Christian to say, you know, I cannot do life on my own. I am too wicked. I need a changed heart. And when you admit your weakness and you finally turn to Christ and you say, Lord, thank you. You have rescued me. I I cannot do everything, but you have done everything for me on the cross. And I trust you as my king and my savior. And in that moment, when you have received the Lord's forgiveness, you have received that pardon at that very same moment, the spirit of God, God places the spirit of God. He implants the spirit of God into your hearts. And that's what the scripture calls being born again. And the day that you are born again and you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, he's planted the Holy Spirit inside of you. You go from this. You go from the moment when you weren't a Christian to when you become a Christian. When you were not a Christian, he who had not begun a good work in you. You go from he who had not begun a good work into you. You go from that to he who has begun a good work in you and will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. And God will be committed to transforming you to be like Christ. And the minute that happens... God has mortally wounded your anger. The minute you are converted and you come to Christ, that he's planted the Holy Spirit within you, that minute, that very second, God has mortally wounded your anger. He has mortally wounded your pride. He has mortally wounded your lust. He has mortally wounded your flesh. He has mortally wounded all those things that have made your life a misery. And sometimes, and we see that here in Jonah, like a cornered animal, These things in your flesh still rear their ugly head. Years ago when we lived in Greenville, we had a possum problem. And they're not the cutest little critters in the world. I know, they're kind of ugly. But they're related to raccoons, which are cute, right? But, I mean, we had possums. And I'll never forget this possum, you know, he, he, uh, okay, for you animal lovers, I did injure the possum with a pellet rifle. And And it wasn't a mortal injury at first. And so, anyway, the poor fellow finds his way into our screened-in porch, and he's cornered, and he plays dead. I'm like, whew, he's dead. And I went to pick him up, and it's like, <laughs> I mean, it was like, yeah, you know, I turned five shades of white. <laughs> I mean, he was fierce. And then I shot him again, and he was mortally wounded, and he was still coming after me, you know? When you corner an animal that's mortally wounded, what does it do? It rears its ugly head, right? It still has some fight left in it. That's what Paul says in Romans 7, it's that flesh. When you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in and he's implanted in you and your flesh is mortally wounded, but it still rears its ugly head at times, right? And that's why we can fall as Christians into these old sinful patterns and self-deception. That's what we see here with Jonah in chapter 4. He falls back into these patterns. That sin rears its ugly head again, once again in Jonah. You see, the condemning power, if you're in Christ, folks, this is good news. The condemning power of sin is gone. If you have trusted Christ and he is the source of your salvation from A to Z, the condemning power of sin is gone in your life, folks. That is good news. You are no longer condemned. What does Romans say? 8.1 say, there's therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Good news. But the actual power of sin is still present in you. It's under a death sentence, albeit, but it's still in you. And so one of the reasons you don't realize how patient God is in his love is because you don't realize how persistent your sin is. And Paul's kind of trying to get that message across in Romans 7 when I read this morning for, that, for the call to worship. And the reason we don't always understand how patient God is in his love is because we don't realize how persistent our sin is. And Jonah 
spells that out for us here in Jonah 4. And sin is subtle, isn't it? Just like we see this in Jonah. Jonah rationalized his sin in in chapter 4, didn't he? He's likely saying to himself, hey, I'm a preacher. I'm a professional Christian worker. And these sort of things are not going to happen to me. I almost think that's what he was thinking about himself. Oh, wow. God, you've forgiven me. You've rescued me in chapter 2. I've been delivered. You've recommissioned me. I'm not going to sin anymore. I'm not going to do that again. No, sir. I'm a professional Christian worker. I'm not going to blow it. Get to chapter 4. Bam, it rears its ugly head again. You know, nobody, nobody admits to sin when it's bewitching you, right? It's not like someday you decide, well, you know what? I think I'm going to disobey the Lord today. That's right. I'm going to disobey the Lord today and I am going to rebel against the creator of the universe who is my ultimate provider and I'm going to descend into this subhuman degraded existence. You don't say that, right? When you sin, you're not thinking that way. You just sin, right? When Jonah ran from the Lord the first time, I I don't think he was thinking, hey, I'm going to spit in God's face purposely. I don't think he was thinking that. No, I think he was thinking, gosh, if God forgives Assyria of their sin, then man, Israel is doomed. <laughs> and I'm going to run. I'm not going to take that message to the God, to, of the God of Nineveh, or to, to Assyria. I'm not going to take that message because if they repent, then man, what about Israel? They're doomed. And so I'm going to run. I don't want to put that on my own people. I'm going to run. I'm going to try to protect them. I might die in the process, but at least I'm giving my life for my people. And so Jonah was self-deceived here, and his racism shines through, Right? He thought he was a superior person. He thought he was a Jewish guy. He thought he was superior to the Assyrians. He thought the Jews, they are God's people. We are a superior people, a superior country, right? And so his self-righteousness and pride are shining through. And he's rationalizing his sin. And he he calls his sin patriotism. He calls his sin self-denial. What are you rationalizing in your life right now? Because we all do that. We rationalize our sin There are sinful patterns in your life right now. Sinful things in your life right now that you rationalize and you're calling them something else. Think about it. You know, you're rationalizing your sin and the patterns in your life doesn't make them go away. You rationalizing them doesn't make them disappear. They're still there and and they are under the sentence of death. And they're still there waiting in the shadows to pounce and rear its ugly head once again. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 4 when God interacts with Cain and Abel? Do you remember this in Genesis 4? Do you remember when Cain in Genesis 4, he's all angry? He's all depressed about the sacrifice that his brother Abel made that God seemingly liked it better than his, right? And so God comes to Cain and says, Cain, why is your face fallen? Why are you down? And then he says, sin is crouching at your door, Cain ready to pounce on you and devour you, but you must master it. What was God saying? Dear Cain, Cain, you think your problem is your brother Abel, your dear brother. You think the problem is based on how other people are treating you, but don't you see that it's not that. There is a deep sin in your life, your pride. Abel, it is your self-centeredness crouching at your door, and it wants to eat you. Don't cave into it. Don't, don't, Don't let it. Cain, admit your sin for what it is. Don't blame your problems on everyone else around you. If you don't see sin as sin, if you're not willing to admit it, it will take over your life and destroy you. And it did, right? And in the same way, friends, you've got to understand how crucial this is. Take a look at your life. 
take a look at the patterns in your life. Who are you blaming for that? What's going on in your life? Stop blaming your sins and the patterns and the character flaws and all the junk that goes on in your heart. Stop blaming that on the situation around you. Stop rationalizing it. Stop psychologizing it. Don't put labels to it. Call it what it is. Pride. Arrogance. Selfishness. Dishonesty. Jealousy. Lack of integrity. Call it what it is. Don't just say, I'm rebellious. I'm not rebellious. I'm just sad. Or don't just say, I'm denying the goodness and faithfulness of God. I'm just worried. Don't say, don't say I'm not being immoral. I'm just lonely. You know, every lonely person needs companionship. I'm not being immoral. I'm just lonely. You see, we first we firstly saw the, the patient love of God and, and that we have a hard time understanding or seeing the patient love of God when we're not willing to admit how powerless, powerless and selfishness exists and pride exists in our life. And then secondly, what happens when you do find yourself beginning to slide back into patterns, old patterns of sin and self-deception? How do you, how do you avoid that? How do you deal with that? What do you do when that happens? Because all of us struggle with that, don't we? We all do. Quickly, four things I want to point out. Real quickly, four things. What do we do when we start to slide back into these old patterns? And Jonah kind of gives us this, this, these steps, four things. The first thing we do is we examine ourselves. You have to examine yourself. Examine your heart. What does God do to Jonah in verse 4? And that's why I only read through the first part of Jonah 4. What does God do to Jonah in verse 4? Jonah, well, I love this. The Lord replied, the Lord came to Jonah. The Lord could have been silent, right? <laughs> the Lord could have said, that's it, Jonah. I'm done with you. I'm not talking to you anymore. You will not hear my word once anymore. You want it? Is that what you want? You don't want to hear from me anymore? You got it. I will turn my back from you, and you will never hear from me again. That's what he deserved, right? But instead, in verse 4, the Lord replied. And this wasn't anger or spite. I really think it was gentleness. The Lord replied to Jonah. Have you any right, Jonah, to be angry? Are you, are you, do you have any right to be angry, right? It's like Jonah, God was saying, Jonah, look at your motives, Jonah. Why are you angry, Jonah? Why do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Now, what is God doing here? God is saying, Jonah, look at your angry, anger. Why are you angry? What is the root of it? What's the cause of your anger, Jonah? God is a wonderful counselor. As a matter of fact, God is the best counselor, and his word is the best counselor because God's word always goes after the heart of the question, the cause of it. It's a great question. Jonah, why are you angry? It's really where you start when you're struggling, when you're sliding back into sinful patterns. You stop and examine yourself and go, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, I know it's been a stressful day at work. Oh, yeah, I did have a flat tire. Oh, the kids are driving me crazy today. Or I... Don't start there. Stop, step back, and ask God, what's going on in my heart? Lord, I need to examine my heart. What's going on inside of me? What, am I... what are the idols in my life, Lord? Show me that. God, what am I really living for? Not what am I really living for in the future 10 years, 20 years down the road? I'm talking about this very moment when I lost it with my kids. What am I really living for? What is it that I really want here? What am I really resting in? What am I really after? Think of it like this. When you're angry or when you get angry, is it because of what people have done to you 
Or is it the reality that you're angry is because those people are keeping you from reaching a goal that's more important to you than they are, or God is? Or maybe the reason you're worried, well, this is a kicker, maybe the reason you're worried is not because of your situation, but because of your circumstances that are out there endangering a goal that's more important to you than trusting the Lord or loving that person that God puts in front of you. Look at yourself, examine yourself, ask God to help you examine yourself. He delights to do that, to point out your sin and then quickly point out his son to you, the Savior. Look at yourself and when you see yourself sliding him back into these old patterns of sin that always begin in the heart. You know, what did Jesus say that out of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. You don't speak a harsh word to somebody because they hurt you. Or you don't speak a harsh word or a a damning word to someone because of your environment. You know why you do that? Because you're a sinner. (laughs) And your heart is dirty and broken. That's why you speak harsh words. You know, I've done a good bit of premarital counseling over the years. And I love to tell couples, and it's just amazing. Sometimes, you know, it dawns on these two folks getting married. I'll say, hey, do you realize that you're a sinner? Yeah, yeah. Do you realize that you're a sinner? Yeah. What happens when two sinners get married? Huh. Sin. (laughs) That's right. When two sinners come together, a lot of sin happens. And a lot of conflict happens and a lot of sparks fly, right? And it's not because, well, the reason I hurt my spouse or the reason my spouse hurt me is because of their past and the way they were brought up and my mom told me to do it this way. Well, maybe that could be. But the reason couples and spouses fight is not because of environmental factors. It's because they're sinners, right? So examine your heart. That's the first step is examining your heart. And the heart can be a scary place, right? And watch out what happens in your heart when, you know, when you're, when you're a believer and you're walking with the Lord and after a time, reading God's word becomes a drag or, or prayer, your prayer life just becomes a drag. Well, the problem isn't with the prayer. The problem isn't with God's word. It's the problem is your heart, right? The problem always originates in your heart. Are you creeping back to your old ways? Examine yourself first, okay? Second thing you do is you begin to confess your sin. As you examine your heart and by God's grace, as he uncovers your sin, you begin to confess your sin. Here's what I mean by confessing sin. Jonah confessed his sin, right? He, he obviously told somebody. He told us, right? Now, here's my question. Who in the world would write an autobiography that included such failures like this that made Jonah look so bad, right? Why would this story, story, this narrative of Jonah's life, again and again, make Jonah look like a total jerk? And the amazing thing is he was willing to tell somebody about it, tell us about it. Put yourself in Jonah's shoes. And maybe your sin is more scandalous than even Jonah's, right? Maybe there's a sexual sin or a moral sin or a moral, moral failure. There's chemical dependency or there's, there's a criminal conviction. Are you going to write that in your autobiography and include detailed features about that sin? You know, confession means, like Jonah does for us, to unmask your sin and call it for what it is. That's why chapter 4 is so astounding and at the same time refreshing because Jonah unmasks his sin for what it really is. He calls it by name. And then he is accountable to the Lord and to us as he reveals it. Call your sin by name. Own it. Don't skirt around it. Don't excuse it. Don't psychologize it. Own it. And then confess it to the Lord and confess it to somebody else. Tell somebody about it. 
When God came to Cain, you remember this in Genesis 4? You know what he was saying to Cain? He was saying, name the beast, Cain. Sin lies at the door crouching, ready to pounce on you. But if you name it, Cain, you own it and you name it, it will lose its power. But what was Cain Cain trying to do with God? God? Cain was saying, God, here's the problem. The problem isn't my sin and my pride and my jealousy and my envy. The problem is my geeky brother Abel over here who gave the better sacrifice. Everybody prefers Abel over me. And the reason I'm depressed is because of him and all the unfairness in that. But actually at the door was crouching envy and self-pity. And Cain, all he had to say was, Lord, you are right. Have mercy on me, a sinner. You are right. I am full of envy and hatred and pride. And yes, my brother is hard to endure, but the reason I'm miserable is because of my sin. The reason I'm in bad shape is because of the diabolicalness that lies within inside of me, that I need to be the center of attention because of my jealousy, because God, you're not enough for me. And by your power, Lord, I repent and I turn to you. I repent for my jealousy and I call it for what it is. I call it by name. And if Cain would have named the beast, it would not have devoured him, right? And if you name your sin and beloved, you own it and in and you own it, and owning your sin, owning it, and calling, for what it, calling it for what it is, is the first baby steps in repentance. You own it, and then first baby steps of repentance. Of, as you own it, God, by his grace, turns you away from it and turns you back to Christ and his grace and his forgiveness. But Cain refused to name it, didn't he? And the beast in the shadows pounce. Because two verses later, what do you read in Genesis 4? Cain lured his brother Abel into the field and murdered him in cold blood and jealousy because Cain was devoured by his sin. Jonah unmasks the sin for us. He calls it by name. He publicly names it so that millions and millions in history would know what a fool he was. But confession is not, you know, I'm not asking you to go and rent a billboard on I-81 and then in large bold type say, I am this. Here's what I've done, sign so-and-so. I'm not asking you to do that. But you can talk to one other person. You can. You can unmask your sin to someone else and to the Lord. And then together, weep and turn in tears to the beauty of Jesus and his grace. Confess your sin to God and to somebody else. Be accountable for it. Thirdly, when you do that, Make sure you realize that God's patient and abounding love for you is the only thing that will keep you from despair. It is the only thing that will prevent you from going to the place of despair. You know, when you first became a Christian, you know, you you could say very simply, I am saved by God's grace and love and oh, I love him. And you sing, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible. You sing it believing it, right? But do you really believe it? Because after many years in your walk with Christ, after sinning and breaking God's promises, and you've seen yourself fall down, you begin to hear this voice in your heart. You know this voice. You know it too well. You know what I'm talking about. You call yourself a Christian. How dare you call yourself a Christian? Why should he listen to your prayers? Why would he love you, right? And those thoughts thoughts begin to haunt you. And they haunt you because you don't really believe that you are a sinner saved by grace. You really thought, hey, I'm a pretty decent person. God will accept me. And then you see that you aren't so good and you see how persistently stubborn and rebellious you are and you begin to wonder why God would accept you. 
And here's the issue. If that's where you're at, you haven't grasped experientially God's love. You have grasped it intellectually in your head, but you haven't grasped God's love experientially, his unmerited favor. You have merit not in and of yourself, but God favors you. God likes you. He loves you because of what Christ has done, and it's given to you freely. It's unmerited. It's undeserved and free. And therefore, because it's undeserved and unmerited and free, it's, it's persistent, and it's infinitely unending and persistent. And if God's infinite and patient love comes to you, and you begin to realize that, not just intellectually, but you begin to experience that, you, be, you begin to develop this comfort and this certainty and foundation that, wow, Christ and his patient love, that is my hope and my hope alone, and that keeps me out of despair. So when you sin and you blow it and you see these sinful patterns come, you repent of yourself and the sin, but you also repent of your despair and you repent of your self-effort in trying to make yourself right with God once again because you never can. Even repent of your best efforts, not just the sin, but even your best efforts, and repent and turn to the bold, free truth that I am loved in Christ alone and nothing can change that. And that's the only way that you can realize that God loves you and will keep you out of the place of despair. And then lastly, seek reality. Seek reality. The grace in your life, the strength in your life, the things, grace and strength, they're like a muscle, right? It's not like an electronic circuit where you flip, flip a light switch on and it goes from a zero to 100% in a microsecond. It's like a muscle. Grace and strength is like a muscle in your life, the strength of a muscle. What happens if you don't constantly use a muscle? It stiffens, right? It becomes atrophied, right? So if you aren't praying, if you aren't repenting to the Lord and others, if you're not owning your sin and turning from your sin to the unmerited favor and riches of Christ, if you aren't spending time in fellowship with other Christians, if you're not seeking to grow in dependency on the Lord and grow in holiness and godliness, then the grace of your life begins to atrophy. It's like a candle that begins to flicker and it gets dimmer and dimmer. But what did Jesus say and what does he constantly say to you, friends? Look at me. What does Jesus constantly say to you? Seek me, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. And that's how we strengthen grace and faith in our life as we turn from ourselves and we draw back again to Jesus. And as we lean into his unmerited favor and grace and accepted love for us, he draws near to us. So we examine ourselves. We confess our sins. We own it. We're accountable to somebody. We're accountable to the Lord and to another person. We do not fall in despair, but we repent and believe the patient love of God. We repent and believe the gospel. And then we always seek for reality instead of just resting and pretending. But we lean heavy into the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Well, we're going to continue chapter 4 next week. Uh, so come back next week and we'll jump in to the rest of chapter 4. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your uh, infinite love and patience and grace for us. Um, Lord, I know we all, every single one of us in this room has experience of, uh, that Jonah had. Of, and I pray every single one in this room has tasted of the, the saving love of Jesus. Maybe there are some in here who have not, who have not ever trusted Christ for their salvation. Uh, maybe they've been trusting in themselves. Maybe they've, they've trusted in the label or the pedigree of their parents' Christianity or religion, but they've, they've never 
personally trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. I pray that today, right now, the moment, this moment, they would enter uh, and, and be moved from death to life as they say, Lord, there is nothing I can do to save myself. I am a sinner. I am so, so icky and nasty inside. And if people only knew, but Jesus, you know, you know them and you know their hearts. And I pray that, Lord, they would move from a place of self-rescue to a place of Jesus' rescue. That, Lord, you would bring them right now from death to life. That they would pray and ask you to come and save them and rescue them. For those of us who are in Christ, who are walking with you, who are trying, Lord, to rest in you, I pray, Lord, as we do see these sinful patterns in our life and we see sin crouching at the door, I pray that, Lord, we wouldn't be mastered by it, but, Lord, we would instead admit it and we would own it and call it for what it is. That we would go to a trusted friend who loves the Lord and, and, and ask for forgiveness. And, and Lord, um, confess our, our sin. As Paul says in Galatians, to confess your sins to one another. Um, that we might find the mercies, the tender mercies of God. And I pray that, Lord, you would help us to confess, to own our sin, and then turn to the beautiful and free, fully free gospel of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Lord, strengthen us, Lord. And um, I pray that you wouldn't strengthen our resolve to try harder. But instead, Lord, you would strengthen our ability to see our sin and then run quickly to Jesus. So, Lord, help us. Lord, we love you. Go before us this day. Encourage us. We have so much to be thankful for this week with thanksgiving. Lord, just fill our minds and our hearts with gratitude for your infinite grace to us in every area of our life. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.